0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 through 26. We're going to skip over a few verses, not because they're not important, but because they uh, deal with some themes we already have looked at, namely 33, 1 through 13, and move into 14, the second half of the chapter, 14 through 26. This is a fascinating passage. You recall earlier, we looked at um, Jeremiah, who was being um, persecuted because of his message. And as they were examining what he was saying over against what uh, false prophets were saying, they actually come up with a quotation from Micah. And it's always fascinating, especially in the Old Testament, when you see a consciousness in, in one part of the Bible of other parts of the Bible, or other other areas, other events, other teaching. Now we're familiar with that in the New Testament because the New Testament frequently directly quotes or alludes to uh, passages, events uh, in, in in the Old Testament. But it's it's less common to see that in the Old Testament an awareness or reference to other passages. It, it certainly does happen. And especially for those who love passages of covenants, where God makes different covenants with his people, all, of course, under the, uh, the overarching umbrella of the covenant of grace, this passage is very interesting because it, it shows uh, a consciousness of those things. It refers to those things. And so let's look at it, see if you notice them as we go through it. Beginning in uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, beginning verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. For well, thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to, to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob, and David my servant will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, And we'll have mercy on them. Let's pray. Lord, open to us this evening your word. We pray that uh, in the darkness of the night, uh, your light would shine brightly in the truths of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, which of course speaks of one to reign on the throne of David over the house of Israel, over the people of God, is sandwiched between two passages. The first one that we did not read, verses 1 through 13, uh, has to do, again, with the Lord's promises of blessing. It really follows chapter 32, uh, which we looked at, where Jeremiah buys a field. Uh, as both a test of his own faith, God calls on him to put his money where his mouth is, promising restoration. The Lord says, now, Jeremiah, go and buy this field. In Anathoth, which he does, uh, both as a test of his own faith and, and, and putting his money where his mouth is to, to add extra oomph to the message he's preaching, but also as a sign to the people, uh, that the Lord will in fact restore the fortunes of his people, as he says. And, and chapter 33, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. And again, promises of blessing that, where once was a waste, uh, again, verse 11, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, promises of restoration. But it's also followed by chapter 34, uh, the prophecy, uh, the promise that King Zedekiah would in fact be uh, taken out, that he would be deported uh to Babylon. In other words, uh Judah would be decapitated as a as a kingdom, their king removed and taken away. Well it's just prior to that then that we have this promise that uh there would always be a king. Uh, it goes along with the restoration. This wasn't the end of the line. As dark as it was, as bleak as it looked, uh, the Lord had a future for his people. And so as we look at verses 14 through 26, uh, it speaks of this These coming kings, or particularly the coming king, uh, as this points forward to Christ. And and notably, four blessings that will come with the reign of this future king. The first blessing we find in verses 14 through 16, and it's justification. Look at, again, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, that in that those days, at that time, and by the way, that kind of language is eschatological. Greek word "eschatos" means last. Eschatology is the theological area of study of last things. Uh, and we we understand in the New Testament that that doesn't just mean the end of time. It has to do with Christ's coming, His death, His resurrection, the inauguration of His kingdom is itself an eschatological event. It's the end invading the present uh, and the, the kingdom being here at work so that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven now, even as we live in this world. But you get this language, the days are coming in Jeremiah. In those days, at that time, it's speaking of a, of a future that goes beyond just the restoration that would take place when, uh, when Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and others return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild and get things going again. It speaks of something grander, something bigger, obviously, of course, speaking of what would happen in Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. Verse 15, a righteous branch uh, the Lord will cause to spring up for David. And the idea here is that that stump... That that tree of Judah has been cut down and there's that stump there that remains, and out of that stump this new life will will grow and begin to spring up. Of course, familiar with that, that image from Isaiah as well, perhaps more familiar with it from Isaiah, sometimes read it at Christmas time, prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So it speaks of this coming king who will rule with justice and righteousness, and will in fact bring in righteousness, so much so that it would be said, he, he would be called the Lord is our righteousness. Well, as we go into the New Testament, of course, we do see the coming of Jesus and uh his, his ministry, his life, and his death, but there's a couple passages I want to refer to there that I think are, are directly a, a fulfillment of what it's saying here. One is, is one I'm sure is familiar to you, Romans three twenty one and following. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see both of those in the cross. God is just. He is he is uh, pouring out his justice on sin. He's punishing sin. But he's also the justifier for those who believe in Jesus because it's in Jesus' death that we are atoned for, our sins are paid for, and uh, given his righteousness. So in the cross, God is both just and justifier. No justice is left slighted in our redemption. God does not ignore his justice, but both his justice and his mercy are fully expressed in the cross of Christ. The Lord is our righteousness. And perhaps even more directly, uh, one other passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Again, familiar words, but, but thinking of them in the context of what Jeremiah is saying, we see that how they fulfill, how their connection to that. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, this king who would come in would bring in righteousness and justice, certainly in his kingdom, But in the citizens of his kingdom, he himself becomes, and from our standpoint, has become, our righteousness. So this is one blessing that this king will bring in here, is that of of righteousness for his people, uh, justification. And there's an echo here uh, of that covenant that the Lord made with Abraham, that that Abraham believed God, and God credited that to him, as righteousness, his his trust in the promises of God. Uh, And certainly as we come into the New Testament, you know Paul's arguments in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, that Abraham is our forefather, not according to the flesh, but according to his faith. So that whether Jew or Gentile, uh, we are counted among his descendants and heirs of those promises made to him who share that faith of our forefather in the faith, Abraham. Uh, more direct reference to Abraham is yet to come. So first is justification. The second blessing that is referred to here is, is uh, like like it, uh, sort of a part of it, and that is atonement. Uh, the Lord would be our righteousness, but he also makes provision for our sins. Look at verses 17 through 18. When this king comes, he will provide atonement for the people. So that says the Lord. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever. Very clear reference there to a passage I've mentioned fairly recently, I believe in the the morning service, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's covenant with David, where again David wants to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, no, it's not for you, but it's for your son Solomon who will build a house. But I will build a house, a dynasty, for you. And promises that he would do that and uh, provide for David and promises this to him in that way. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 11, the end of the verse, "...the Lord will make you a house." When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who come from your body and establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. That's Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, And it goes on in uh, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the Lord makes this promise uh, that David's throne would continue, carry on. Uh, David would never lack a man to sit. But then he refers to the Levitical priests, never lacking a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings. Now that's kind of strange, because we know with both the king, kingship and the priesthood that there were interruptions. Zedekiah is about to be taken away uh, in the next chapter. Uh, during that exile, uh, and certainly uh, as you start to move into the New Testament times, uh, the priesthood had been interrupted. Uh, and even when they came back to the land and tried to get things going again, they sort of had to reestablish now, who's who, uh, what tribe are people from, and we're trying to get it get it all going again. But the emphasis here is on the fact that this, when this king will come, the priesthood, the system will be there that atonement would be made, offerings being made for sin. And the only way that this makes any sense is if it is pointing to what we have in Christ. Because in Christ, the three major offices of the Old Testament are united. The office of prophet, priest, and king. They were were separated in the Old Testament. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. Those are bound up into one in Christ, who obviously is the king of kings. He is the prophet, not just speaking the word of God, but but God himself in the flesh. And he is the the priest. He is the one who offers up the sacrifice, the lamb of God, who happened to be himself. Uh, Turn with me back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks uh, in, in any number of places about this. Uh, but uh, Hebrews 9 is, uh, is one in particular that uh, dwells on it. 9 verse 9 says, uh, starting in the middle of the verse, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That is in the Old Testament system. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest... ...of the good things that have come. Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So as Jeremiah's prophesying of this coming king, he's a king who will bring in righteousness. He is a king uh, who under whom and a part of his reign would, would be this, this uh, priesthood that would be in effect that would bring about real atonement for the people of God. Another blessing that would come in with this reign is that of stability. That of stability. In verses 19 through 22, uh, as we've seen in Jeremiah, and if if you're familiar with the Old Testament history, you know that stability was often hard to come by. But unfortunately, when stability did tend to settle in with a king who reigned for a long time, uh, more often than not, it was a wicked reign. It was evil. Uh, stability of wickedness. But this king would usher in uh, a a kingdom that will not fall, uh, and as a king would reign forever. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that night and day will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. God is referring back there to a promise he made, of course, to Noah in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis 8, Noah builds an altar to the Lord. This is um, after the flood. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Regardless of how men think they're somehow going to disrupt that pattern uh, through carbon emissions or whatever it might be, Uh, The Lord says, no, in fact, those things will continue on. Not that we don't want to take care of the environment, to be sure, as best we can, but uh, God has said that daytime and nighttime will follow seasons, will follow seasons, that that itself is a covenant of stability. The flood was, was an ultimate instability, the disruption of everything, the destruction of everything. And God says, recognizing the wickedness in men, that he promises not to destroy us in that way again, but rather promises that there will be this, this regularity, this stability in the order of creation. And then he refers to that as verification of promises he makes regarding this future king. Uh, if that covenant is broken so that day and night don't come as they should, then he can break his covenant regarding David and regarding this this priesthood. But he goes on, uh, verse 22, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now, who are we used to to the Lord promising would have offspring like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore? Abraham, right? That was the the benchmark. Look at the stars, Abraham. Number them if you can. You know, so shall your descendants be. So a clear reference back to that. But here he's referring not to Abraham, but to David and to the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now, again, we're getting back to how is this fulfilled? Uh, there was the disruption of the line of the kings and certainly in the priesthood. But here he says the descendants, the offspring of David, uh, the priests would be like the stars of the sky, it would be like the sand on the seashore. Well, how is that fulfilled? Well, as with Abraham, it is fulfilled in a spiritual sense. Not so much in Abraham's physical descendants, although God certainly blessed and multiplied Abraham Uh, against all odds, uh, you know, waiting, not able to have children so late in life. And God uh, finally blesses them with Isaac and uh, through him growing into a great multitude uh, that Moses eventually leads out of Egypt. But Abraham's offspring ultimately are not recognized by physical descent, but again, by those who have believed in the promises of God, uh, just as Abraham believed in the word of the Lord. Well, here, Again, we have the same thing: offspring of David, Levitical priests. Not so much literally. When did when when were the Levitical priests ever like the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore? Well, that too is fulfilled in the new covenant in the people of God. That we, the people of God, will reign with Christ with Christ, and that we are uh, kingdom of priests. We're familiar with that. In fact, uh, we'll get to that. Not. The not-too-distant future in our study of First Peter. Everybody, you're familiar with that passage in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, we are the fulfillment of the priests being like the stars, being like the sand, uh, because we, in Christ, have access to God. We come through the sacrifice of our high priest, but we are the ones who come and offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. We are a royal, there's the kingship element, priesthood. There's the Levitical element, and it's promised and fulfilled here. And so the Lord bases that promise on the stability of creation, and says this certainly will happen. There's a stability here, there's a certainty here that is promised, a blessing that will come with, our, with this, at that point, future king. And then the last thing, the last blessing he mentions here is an acceptance with the Lord. It really goes along with the other three. In verses 23 and following, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? And thus they've despised my people, so they're no, longer, they're no longer a nation in their sight. Well, who are these people? Well, we might say it's, it's Judah, but it, it makes more sense to understand it as the nations who are saying, well, look, the Lord's rejected these two clans. He's rejected Israel and Judah, um, so that they don't even see them as a nation anymore. And certainly they were taken into exile. There's something to that. But how does God respond? Verse 25, thus says the Lord... If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, again, that that reference, that covenant with Noah, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So again, the Lord bases uh, the certainty of his promise on the fulfillment of his promise to Noah. Uh, They knew full well that day followed night, season followed season. Uh, there there was a, a, a systematic consistency there, and again God appeals to that that He has not rejected his people, but He accepts them, and He will continue to uh, keep them for himself and to rule over him. The offspring by the way, uh, as He reminds us here, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as if to remind them who they were, as if to remind us who we are, not just. Uh, not, not given up, not handed over, but the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Going back there to the beginning, the Lord says, For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Uh, the same verse, First Peter two nine, we looked at, refers to us as a people for his own possession. See, God does not reject his people. He's not cast off his people here. And so, again, appealing to creation and its order. Uh, maintains that he has not rejected them, but loves them and will keep them, and does, in fact, bring them back in the Old Testament to Jerusalem and restore them there. But that in itself is, is merely a partial and beginning fulfillment of all that God has for the blessings he's going to pour out on his people. Justification, atonement for our sins, uh, stability. Uh, God's not, uh, as we read in James, uh, he's not variable. He's not like a shadow that shifts and moves about, but he's stable. And then finally, his, ex- uh, his acceptance of us in Christ Jesus because of righteousness, because of the atonement that he's made, because God always stands by his word. As we think about that, so is that really true? Will that really stand? God basically says to us, you don't believe me? Look out the window, it's dark, morning it will be light, and just as surely as that happens, the Lord says, you can count on my word that I will do all I have said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenants. We thank you that they are so secure and strong that you can even refer to another covenant to verify a covenant you've made later. And Father, we thank you that your word is always trustworthy and always true. Father, we thank you for that assurance as we face this week to know that you are a faithful God, uh, that you do not change, that you are not unpredictable, and that you will never go back on the promises, commitments that you have made. And we thank you for that. Thank you for Christ, Lord, who came in fulfillment of these very prophecies. Thank you that he is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king. And we pray in his name. Amen.